We're continuing together in the Gospel of John. And so this morning we are looking at chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. First, or Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. So I encourage you to follow along in your Bible as I read. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. We ended, ended last time with the uh, beautiful worship offered by Mary as she anointed the feet of our Lord. As the fragrant aroma of that uh, ointment filled the room, the fragrant aroma of her worship fills our heart. What a beautiful scene. And what a blessed encouragement to our Lord as he was looking forward to the cross on the other side of Jerusalem. How sweet her offering of love was. How well expressed. And tragically... At the same time, then there was Judas leading the other disciples in criticism. What are you doing? What a waste. But in after, after that scene of worship, the story continues. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there in Bethany. And they came not for the sake of Jesus only, but that they might also see Lazarus whom he'd raised from the dead. So these are the, the Jews. And when we see the word Jews, again, I, I think it's more than just saying Israelites. That, that seems to be focusing especially on, on the, uh, the Jewish leadership uh, in, in Jerusalem. So, but, but these Jews from Jerusalem had heard about Lazarus. And, and, and now Jesus was there who had raised Lazarus. And so they went. We, we, we read earlier, there, there had been a lot of discussion. Is Jesus going to come for the Passover? Again, this was one of those Passover, one of the feasts of Israel. There were three where the, the Jews were supposed to gather in Israel. Jesus had been doing that all his life. Luke tells us, for example, we see a scene when, when he's a child and, and there in Jerusalem for the Passover. But the question is, will he come now? We saw back in chapter 11, verse 57, it said this. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. So the word was out, wanted. 
If you know where Jesus is, you must report it to us. That's your duty. Well, this crowd that we see here, this group of Jews in Jerusalem, they heard that Jesus was in Bethany. But instead of running to the Sanhedrin, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and saying, we know where he is, they went themselves because they wanted to see. What an incredible thing. You know, I think, remember, uh, everybody in Israel had heard things about Jesus. You know, we see that when, when Herod Antipas wanted to meet him and, and when, you know, Pilate and all the, they'd heard things about him. Remember the, the two on the road to Emmaus when Jesus doesn't reveal that, that he's with them. He's the one with them. Uh, they're saying, how can you not know what's been going on in Jerusalem? So all over, people have been talking about this ministry of Jesus. And you can imagine there were questions. Oh, is it for real? Is he a trickster? Oh, that's just the crowd's imagination. Well, here now was a miracle right outside, two miles away from Jerusalem. Many in Jerusalem had been there and had seen Lazarus buried. And then four days later, they had been there when Jesus raised him from the dead. They saw it. This wasn't something that happened up in Galilee and maybe it's some wives' tale, some, some dubious question. There were many a witness in Jerusalem who had seen Lazarus still in his grave clothes walking out of the tomb. And so when they heard that Jesus was now in Bethany again with Lazarus, remember they had that, bank, that dinner together, they went. They went to Jesus, the one who could raise the dead. And they went to see a man raised from the dead. You can imagine the, the enthusiasm and interest in seeing this. And so some went. Again, they didn't go to report him. They went to see for themselves. But there's a, it seems like the biggest issue here is not really worship, but more curiosity. Have you ever seen that sometimes when crowds will gather it's, it's not because they're really interested in what's happening. It's just curiosity. What's going on here? And so um, they gathered because they wanted to see this guy who's raised from the dead. I mean, you have to admit, when's the last time you had the opportunity to see someone who had been raised from the dead? I mean, it's, that, would be a, that would be interesting. Uh, and, and the one who raised him. But do you see what's missing? It's not enough to be curious They went more of curiosity, entertainment. Verses 10 and following we read, But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. While the curious sought to see Jesus and Lazarus, the furious sought to kill Jesus and Lazarus. We're told it was the, the chief priests. And again, I have to remind you, there were uh, different groups of Jews, if you will, like different denominations. And there were the, two of the ones we think we see most in the New Testament are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Sadducees were the ones who denied miracles. They, had no, they did not believe in an eternal soul. They did not believe in a coming resurrection. 
They did not believe in miracles. And so there is a report of Lazarus being raised from the dead caused all kinds of problems. It's a miracle. It's, it's a type of resurrection. It suggests a, the existence of an eternal soul. And so they're the ones who, they've got to do something about this. And so they, splot, they at first they just wanted to kill Jesus. Remember, this, this is something when the whole Sanhedrin had gathered together. And, and the, the, I, the question was, what are we going to do about this? And, and it was mentioned, well, if, if, if we kill one, it's good for the whole nation. You know, we could, you know, just, just, if we just kill one person, the whole nation benefits. Remember, that was a, kind of a prophecy. And saying that, didn't realize if one dies, many can buy, find forgiveness. But that's not what he meant. We kill one man. We, we plot, we kill, we do it unjustly, but we quiet things down. If we just kill Jesus, if our problem goes away, and we don't have to worry about the Romans getting upset with us. Now, at least the, the Sadducees, the chief priests, are saying, uh, we better add Lazarus to the list. See, we know for a fact, they would say to one another, there is no such thing as a miracle or resurrection. We also know that many people we know from right here in Jerusalem saw him dead and then saw him raised. They saw him buried and they saw him raised four days later. What do you do with that? Where there is witness after witness after witness to the fact that he was raised from the dead. Well, you kill him. That's their plan. Because his the very fact that, you know, he could walk into Jerusalem, this one who had been dead, really causes problems for their system of belief that there is no such thing as a miracle. And so their plan is, let's just kill him. Destroy the evidence that, of the miracle they couldn't refute. And so now instead of plotting one murder, they're plotting two. And later on, they'll plot another one, Stephen and James. The problem doesn't go away. And eventually, they'll plot to kill Jesus as well. They've already plotted that. And that won't solve their problem either. But, but you notice there's a pattern that we see in life. Once you start down the road of sin... It can take you in directions you never imagined. Sin, in this case, plotting a murder, deceit, denying what's clear. Kind of reminds me of that old statement, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Have you ever noticed that when someone starts lying, the problem is then they have to keep lying. And they have to kind of build on the story. Oh, you did this? Yeah. You were there? Yes. And you start, and who else was there? You know, you have to just keep expanding the story to, to cover up for your lies. What a tangled web we weave. Mark Twain had good counsel. If you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. I heard about uh, some students that uh, were away from campus and then came the final exam. And the day after the exam, they came to the professor and said, you know, we, we, we're asking for mercy. What's the problem? Well, we were, we were out of town, and uh, we had a flat tire. We couldn't get here in time for the exam, so could you please make an exception? 
can we please take the exam? And they just pleaded and they begged. And finally he said, okay, I, I, I want to talk to each of you four guys individually. And he had them each go to a private room. And then to, he walked into each room and looked at the student and said, which tire was flat? <laughs> he was going to find out who, if it really was a true situation. Man, you know, you got to cover it all up. Um, and, and you build on it. And so, so they've got a problem. They're trying to, they're trying to deny what is, what is an established fact. Lazarus was dead and Jesus raised him from the grave. What do we do with that? They're already plotting the murder of Jesus. Now Lazarus is a problem. Let's, let's plot his murder. And, and so I think we can grab a lesson from this in our own lives. Don't fall into the trap of your own deceit. As I said, one sin leads to another. One deception leads to another. Don't start. Or you'll find yourself constantly having to build, build, build instead of tearing down sin and following Christ. I don't know that Mark Twain was talking about following Christ, but He's right. You know, if you tell the truth, you don't, have, you, th- you don't have to remember anything. Life becomes simpler if you just follow Christ. But when you keep trying to, to lie and deceive and add one sin to another, you're, you kind of build this huge wall between you and the Lord. So be careful in, in how you begin. And, and that reminded me of that other proverb we've all heard, sow a thought and you reap an action. So an act, and you will reap a habit. So a habit, and you will reap a character. So a character, and you reap a destiny. You know, you, you be careful how you build. And the, and the Sadducees are a picture of, once you start building rebellion and deception, where does it stop? You, you have to just keep adding more bricks to the wall. Vince Lombardi said something very similar. Watch your actions, they become your habits. Watch your habits, they become your character. I tried to search, by the way, who said these things. And you can find everybody. Abraham Lincoln, uh, Augustine, whoever. So the quotes are out there. (laughs) Who said them? I'm not going to be dogmatic. but, But the point is, be careful how you build. The Sadducees are building, uh, if you will, a, a castle that's going to crumble. And it does. When when we're resisting the Lord, we're just putting one brick on top of another, on top of another, between us and the Lord. And the problem is we're building on sand. It's all going to come crumbling down. And unfortunately, there are many of the people around us that we see. That's what they're doing. They're building a life of, of saying no to God. And one after another after another, it's all going to come tumbling down. How much simpler, how much clearer, how much better to just take step after step following Jesus Christ. Lord, where would you have me go? What would you have me do? What would you have me say? I'll trust you. You're the shepherd. So we see then what's been going on. Jesus has come back to Bethany. They had that banquet. They had the the worship of the ointment. 
People came just so they could see them. There they are. There's Jesus. There's Lazarus. And, and, and we see the Sadducees are hearing these reports. And they're figuring, Lazarus is a problem now too. We need to get rid of him. Well, in verses 12 to 18, uh, things begin. Moving towards the Passover. This will describe what we all know as Palm Sunday. Now, it's been given various lab- labels, the triumphal entry, whatever it may be, but, but, but this is what we see happening in verses 12 to 18. The next day, so that the other was on Saturday. And again, to remind you how these things work, in the Jewish world, uh, they went from evening, to, from sundown to sundown. And so uh, the Sabbath is Friday night to Saturday night. And so a lot of times things get pretty active after sundown on Saturday. So again, living in Jerusalem, uh, Friday night, things stop. There's not, there's not a lot you can do. Um, and so what you see happen is Saturday night after sundown, all of a sudden the streets are busy. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the restaurants open back up and, and, and things are happening because now you can. And so Saturday night, I imagine a, you know, probably several came from Jerusalem to go see Lazarus and Jesus. But the next day is, is Sunday. The next day a great multitude had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So here it is Sunday. Now we see a new group of people. Okay, so first we saw Jesus and Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and, and you know, they're having that banquet. And the way it would have been in a small town like that, you know, people are looking in windows, people are looking doors. I mean, you know, the, the, the community's kind of watching. But then the, the Jerusalem curious come, up, come in. But now we're told, here's another group, the Passover pilgrims. And, and, you can ima- and, and it's hard for us to kind of grasp this. But again, three times a year, you go to Jerusalem. And, and it's, you know, if you're coming, say, from Galilee and Perea, if you're coming from that way, it's a few days' journey. And so everybody's walking along the road together. And again, it's kind of a party atmosphere as far as celebrating. And they're, and they're singing the psalms, psalms of ascent, the ones as they ascend toward Jerusalem. They're singing together. They're worshiping together. They're reconnecting with family and friends, not just from their village, but the villages along. And so this crowd is coming to Bethlehem. Josephus tells us that sometimes there were as many as 250 thousand sheep sacrificed for the Passover. And the rule was uh, ten people per sheep. So we're saying there were two and a half to three million people crowding into Jerusalem. Uh, which that's a, you know, it was so it, this was the crowd passing through. And, and for these that were coming down, typically they came down from Galilee, people from Perea joining them, come up through Jericho, up past Bethany, over the Mount of Olives, into Jerusalem. So this whole crowd is passing right by where it all happened. And they've been gathered in Jerusalem now, and word's coming, Jesus is in Bethany. And word is coming, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. So people either, they saw it or they heard he's got a plan. So they go out, because here he is, he's coming. 
So here are now not the Jerusalem regulars, but the Passover pilgrims who are gathered in Jerusalem. And they're all ready. It's a festive spirit. It's an excited spirit. Maybe you've been to a big football game. And the people are there for a big football game. And you just come into the scene and you can just sense there's a lot of excitement. Well, that's kind of the spirit. This is a big festive time. And here comes Jesus. Everyone's been talking about. And we're told what they did is they, they took branches of palm trees. That's what we call Palm Sunday. And went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The waving of the palm branch was the manifestation, I'm going to read you a quote here, of the joy of victory. Kind of like everything's going to be better now. Have you ever seen sometimes when there's a patriotic thing, everybody has their flags? Well, well, this is kind of like a flag waving, but it was a palm tree waving. When Simon the Maccabee entered Jerusalem in triumph, so he had fought off the Greeks, he had been victorious. He was welcomed as a conquering hero when he came to Jerusalem. And what did they do? They came, we're told, in, in the book of Maccabees, with thanksgiving and branches of palm trees, with harps and cymbals and vials and hymns and songs, because they, he was destroyed, the great enemy of Israel. And later we're told the people carried branches and palms also and sang psalms. And that gets a little confusing. They had palms and sang psalms. If you read too quickly, you might get that reversed. They waved psalms and sang palms. And then probably they clapped their palms together. And that really gets us. But, but, you, but, but here's what I want you to know. A hundred years before Jesus, when a victorious conqueror, a hero, comes into Jerusalem, what do they do? They meet him with palm branches and they sing psalms. I don't know. Sometimes we think of, uh, I don't know if we still do this sort of thing, but you know, it used to be they had these ticker tape parades. And, and when some hero came in, someone had been on the moon, someone had conquered the enemy, they would have a ticker tape parade for them. And so that kind of came symbolic of a hero's welcome. Well, in this case, in this culture, at this time, you waved palm branches and you sang psalms of, of victory. And the psalm they are singing when they're saying this, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you look in your Bible, that's probably in italics or something, saying this is an Old Testament quote from Psalm 118. And again, when Simon the Maccabee, so again, when the, the Jews after Alexander the Great had been under Greek rule, these group we call the Maccabees, rose up in rebellion, finally, and conquered out and drove out the Greek idol-worshiping conquerors and get, regained Israel's independence. The, the ones who did that we call Maccabees. Well, when Simon the Maccabee came in, with the palm trees, they sang also from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, all that to say, when Jesus is coming in, this is how you... You welcome a conquering hero. What is that telling us? They see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, knowing the leadership wants him dead and are looking for him. Jesus is kind of in your face, 
coming into Jerusalem and they are saying, and he's coming to conquer. He's coming as our hero king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a messianic psalm. The other gospels, remember there's four gospels and, and they kind of, uh, some people say, why, do, why are there four gospels? Are they competing with each other? No. Um, they're multiple witnesses. We have these crime situations that we hear about. And you watch, the police always go and they talk to as many people as they can. Nowadays they say, does anybody have a, a you know, video on their phone or in their security system? We want, as, we want as many angles as we can. So the four gospels give us a, uh, multiple views of the same event. They fill in more details. Uh, they tell us that you know, our gospel tells us, John says, uh, Jesus got a donkey. Well, they fill in the details in the other Gospels and say, actually, Jesus sent his disciples to go get them. That's not a contradiction. You see that all the time. It'll say, uh, the king killed so-and-so. He didn't kill him. He ordered him killed, or his, his troops killed him. So the disciples acting on Jesus' part got him a, a, a donkey. And the point is, Jesus, they're all, the Gospels make clear, was intentional. I want to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. Now, when we think of riding a donkey, that the, the idea of um, glory and honor don't really come to mind. I have a, a sad memory of the only thing, when I think of donkeys, I remember one time my, my high school, there was a donkey basketball game. And the whole thing is it's kind of ludicrous. Um, and so when we think of donkeys, we don't think of, of, of Donkey and dignity just don't seem to go together, do they? So what is going on here? Uh, again, if I can kind of read a, another commentator, he said, and several point this out, don't misunderstand. We see the donkey is as lowly and despised, but in the East, it was a noble animal. Again, I struggle to put noble and donkey together, but well, you know, that's why we have to look past the culture. Jair, the judge, had 30 sons who rode on donkeys. Ahithophel rode upon a donkey. Mephibosheth, the royal prince, the son of Saul, came to David riding upon a donkey. And, and, and so when a king uh, rode in on a donkey, that was a kind of a sign of uh, nobility, of wealth. Donkeys were not cheap. But you know what else it kind of suggests? Relaxed. Now, if a king comes in on a stallion, on a horse, uh, he's coming to conquer. He's coming for battle. When he comes in with the donkey, the battle is over. He's, he's coming in in a, in, a, in, a, in a limo. He's coming in not in a tank. He's coming in with humility and with, with peace. And, and, and that's the sense here. So one pointed out that if one of the, some of the Roman soldiers looked out on the Mount of Olives and saw Jesus coming down on a donkey, they wouldn't sound an alarm and say, wait a minute, here comes a guy who's trying to conquer. Uh, it, that's not the picture of it. it. It's coming in peace and coming in, 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 in nobility. He was showing himself, yes, a king, but a, a peaceful king, but he was also coming intentionally fulfilling prophecy intentionally fulfilling prophecy. You see that in verse uh, 
15 or 14. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Zechariah 9.9, Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus was intentionally, purposefully fulfilling messianic prophecy. He was presenting himself as the Messiah promised in Zechariah 9. Here I come. Here I come, Israel. I'm coming as your king. John humbly gives us a confession in verse 16. His disciples, and John's one of them, did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Jesus purposely fulfilled messianic promises, fulfilled messianic prophecy, and showed himself to be the promised king, offering himself to Jerusalem. And his own disciples, who had spent three years under his tutelage, missed it. And it wasn't until he ascended into glory, and in that time, We're told in in, in John later on, chapter 14, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind, he will remind you of the things I taught you. And they're going to remember this and then say, hey, that was Zechariah. And, you know, it's kind of hard to kick yourself, but maybe they all just started kicking each other. I don't know, but how could we have missed that? You know, head slap. What what, what went on? Here was Jesus fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, and we missed it. And so if his disciples missed it, I guess the crowd missed it. And there's a lesson for us. If if, if we don't know our Bibles, then we're, we're going to miss a lot of what God's doing in our life. Jesus was doing something absolutely incredible. Jesus was saying, I am the Messiah, and here I am, Jerusalem, coming as your king, and they missed it. Because they weren't thinking biblically about what was going on. Maybe they got too caught up in the crowd in the moment, it's Passover, whatever it may be, but they missed it. And and if we're not thinking biblically, if we're not looking through the lens of Scripture in our circumstances and situations, we're going to miss so much of what God is doing. Now I could go in the big picture of looking at what's happening around us. You know, there have been those that say, uh, when I read my, my newspaper, I have a Bible next to it and see how those two can fit together. And more and more, when I, I mentioned a lot lately, when I see some of the horrible crimes and the brutality of man, that's becoming more and more commonplace, it seems, in our culture. I keep thinking of the text of Scripture that says, in the end days, love will grow cold. And, and love is growing cold. There's such a, 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 an inhumanity to man. But, but in other words, here's the point. Uh, uh, reading the newspaper, reading the, hearing the news through the lens of Scripture, 
And whatever our circumstances in our life may be, seeing it through the lens of Scripture, we're going to get much more out of it and, and, and much more readily grab on to what God is doing in our life. The disciples missed a big one here. And can you imagine, again, as they looked at each other and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We were there and missed Jesus intentionally saying, I'm the Messiah, here I am. Verses 17, 18, it continues, Therefore the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. So now we're we're seeing, remember I've been saying there's different groups, those who were in Bethany all along. Then there's the pilgrims who came. And now we're, we're seeing there's more. We're seeing that, um, we're seeing the, the group that had seen Lazarus raised are telling those pilgrims in Jerusalem about it. And so, and, and they're saying, and guess what? This Jesus who raised a dead man, and I saw it myself, he's coming into Jerusalem this morning. And there's all, been all these rumors is he the prophet? Is he the Messiah? Who is he? Well, say he's, he's riding into Jerusalem today. And by the way, the pilgrims walked in. But he's riding in. And so now the crowd comes flowing out of Jerusalem. When I said crowd, remember? It's as many as a couple of million people that are now filling this area. That crowd starts coming out of Jerusalem to meet him. They'd heard about the miracle. And they wanted to see this one who many said was the Messiah. Because they heard the the message of what happened right there in Bethany. And they start crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, a messianic welcome, a victor's welcome, a hero's welcome. The palm branches saying the same thing. But then we see the frustration of the Pharisees. Verse 19, the Pharisees said among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. (laughs) Um, Have you ever been in a committee where everyone's trying to blame someone else? Notice they're saying, you're not doing anything. Well, neither are you. So they're all kind of finger. You can see in a circle, they're all just pointing at each other. You're not not getting anything done. Well, you're not doing. You know, they're saying there's this frustration Whatever we try, it's not working. Here he comes. The crowds are going to him. It's getting out of control. The Pharisees, for all their talking and plotting, it's only getting worse. The vast Passover crowd is full of talk and interest in Jesus. Jerusalem is singing his praises, welcoming him like a hero. You can imagine the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their blood is running cold. We are quickly losing control of the situation. It's getting out of hand. The crowds are following Jesus. Listen to them sing. Listen to them chant. See the palm branches. Notice the hero's welcome. This enthusiastic crowd... The Pharisees and the Sadducees can't control. 
singing to Jesus, cheering Jesus, welcoming Jesus like a hero, within a week their hosannas will turn to crucify him. How can that be? It was interesting. I was kind of stunned to read a couple of different commentators that point out that's exactly right. When they're saying Hosanna, they're not, they're not really bowing before Jesus. They're, they're, they're demanding of Jesus. You be our king. Remember after the feeding of the 5,000, uh, Jesus recognized they were, trying, they were about to force him to be king. Force to be king. That sentence doesn't make sense. If you're forcing him to be king, you're actually the ruler. And this crowd is is demanding of Jesus, if you will. Come, rescue us from the Romans. A week later, not even a week, when they realize he can't rescue him from the Romans, crucify him. Take him away. Scourge him. Crucify him. He's a loser. What was the problem? We see it again and again. They had their expectations for Jesus. When we come to Jesus, we don't bring our expectations. When we come to Jesus, we come with empty hands and say, Lord, what is your will? What is your way? Speaking of kings, are you aware that there's been a coronation recently? No, I'm not talking about the little city elections. <laughs> but that place called over there, Britain, uh, King Charles was finally crowned. He was, I guess, been king officially, but now he, is, he received his crown. And the crowds, you know, if, you're, uh, if you don't like crowds, you would not, if you're claustrophobic, I don't think you would want to have been in some of those situations. Packed, 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 spectacular pageantry. You know, troops and horses and flyovers and music and every kind of uniform and incredible regalia they were wearing. And in the context of his coronation, he takes an oath. And then his uh, son uh, took an oath of, of, of obedience. And then they included where those present filling up that chapel were offered to take an oath. And, it, and they said it was, instead of the roar of excitement, it was more of a mumble. Oh yeah, we, we like the pageantry. Hey, this is cool. The gold, the gold carriage is really impressive. You look like a king. Obey you? Well, that's, that's not really what we had in mind. We, we, we like the tourist attraction. Well, we can sell all kinds of trinkets. It's nice to have a respected public figure obey you. Well, they mumbled. In fact, I'd, I'd seen notices beforehand. There was even discussion: should they, would he really ex- give them that that oath of, of that they're going to make a commitment to obey him? It's kind of funny when you go to weddings. Have you noticed that people always listen for that when they're say, make, saying the vows? Will, that, will they use that word? Submit. I remember one wedding after the service there was out in the parking lot and the father came up, submit? <laughs> he was just stunned. You really? She's really committing to submit to him? Well, 
Well, they're not, the, the, the king, the, when the king called for an oath of commitment, he got a murmur, not a roar. And that's the problem. Oh, they're, they're, they roar for the pageantry, and we love a hero. Submit? Uh, no, thank you. Crucify him. But don't just talk about the crowds in Jerusalem. We have the same problem. You look at crowds and you see churches get all, some churches get all excited and all kinds of things going on, but is there really a heart to submit to the Lordship of Christ? You know, that is really his name, isn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ. He calls us to take up your cross and follow me. Submit? No, I want a God who will answer my prayer and make me happy. Jesus calls us, follow me. I kind of teasingly remind some of our young men who have joined into the service that when they, uh, when they took that oath and joined the service, it's great to have the uniform and all that, but they have now officially become government property. And often there's the frustration. When am I going? Where am I going? What will I do? We will tell you when we want to tell you. You belong to us, and we'll tell you what we want. When we come to Jesus, we, we want a hero. Hosanna. And what he was calling for was to bow before him and say, Master, welcome. They want him to drive out the Romans. He wants them to surrender to him. When that became clear, then they joined with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. We'll take the terrorist, thank you, rather than the Messiah. So there's a good reminder here. There's a, there's a world of difference between political or religious fervor and enthusiasm and saving faith that honors the king. How do we view Jesus? Is he a God in the sky who's going to meet all our wants and fix our problems? Or is he the, is he the sovereign Lord before we, whom we bow our knee and say, here I am, your servant. And I'm again stunned by this. Jesus had 12 hand-picked disciples. And of course, we could look at that crowd and say, that was your first mistake, these, these 12. But, but he knew what he was doing. And yet, three years under the personal tutelage of Jesus Christ, and they missed the big moment when he directly fulfilled Zechariah 9. What happened? I think they got caught up in the t- crowd mentality. They get caught up with the crowd. And we do the same thing. We let those around us, we, we buy into those around us, and we do things the way everyone's doing it. You know, you know the old thing, right? When parents will say, why did you do that? And the child's answer is, well, or, or they're asking permission, uh, well, everybody's doing it. And then we quote the Bible verses. Every, if everybody's jumping off a bridge, are you going to jump off a bridge? Well, no, that's not in the Bible. It's, but... But, I mean, that's the standard answer. So who cares if everybody's doing it? Does that make it right? 
Well, they get caught up in the fervor. They got it caught up with the crowd. We get caught up with our culture. And we do what's right in our culture's eyes instead of right in Christ's eyes. And let me tell you, those are two different sets of eyes. And how we need to constantly remind ourselves, see things through the lens of Christ, through the lens of Scripture, tested by truth, not by what the crowd around us is saying. Because if you've been paying attention, this crowd is getting further and further away from the holiness and the truthfulness of Christ. Test truth by the scripture. And then I have to think about Jesus coming down that mountain. The crowds are crying. The palms are waving. And Jesus has probably never felt more alone. Have you ever noticed sometimes that in a crowd you can be incredibly alone? It's not having people around you. And it's not even having people saying, hey, great job, great job. I wonder how many a sports hero or whatever else it might be feels incredibly lonely in spite of the accolades and the praise. Jesus was incredibly lonely. And we'll see that later on when we see him, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. Could he be more lonely than that? And he goes and and tries to stir up his best of friends. Couldn't you stay awake for an hour while I'm agonizing over what's before me? And those who follow Jesus will find themselves increasingly alone. Because Jesus said his way is a narrow gate. And his way is a narrow way. And frankly, that's one reason the church is so important to us. For hopefully we're gathering with people who are like-mindedly seeking Christ. And then I always see church as a place to kind of recalibrate. It's not what the crowd is saying. It's not what the internet is saying. It's not what the, the tweets and blogs and whatever else is saying. It's, it's what is God's word saying. And God's people can, can help us recalibrate. This is where the truth is. This is where the way is. Not with the crowd. But the disciples got swayed by the crowd. And, and, and we're not thinking biblically. To see what Christ was doing. As we draw to a close and get ready for the Lord's Supper, I do need to just challenge each one of us. Where are we in this picture? In that crowd, where would we be? Are we the disciples seeking to follow Christ imperfectly? Are we the crowd that's just kind of uh, trying to tell God what he needs to do in our life? Or, or we'll go somewhere else, thank you. Have you personally trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior? Have you recognized your sin? And only his death on the cross can pay for your sin. And have you, have you trusted in him for forgiveness and life? If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, do that now. Don't wait. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then worship him.
and keep up the guard in the midst of the crowd. How appropriate as we come to the, these thoughts that we come to the Lord's table today. And we, and we think of, of, we're to be reminded of his body sacrificed, his blood shed for us. The scripture tells us when we, when we come to the Lord's table, we're to examine ourselves. And so we, have, uh, we, we want to say together a, a prayer of confession that will help us to examine our hearts and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Let's see if we can see it. It's magic. There it is. I want to read it together, but really we want to pray it together. O Lord, we are grieved that we have offended you, and we condemn ourselves and our sins with true repentance beseeching your grace to relieve our distress. O God and Father, most gracious and full of compassion, have mercy on us in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you blot out our sins and stains, magnify and increase in us day by day the grace of your Holy Spirit and produce in us the fruits of righteousness and innocence which are pleasing to you through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. 